What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to the Power Company Podcast brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. If you happen to be listening to this in the day or so after it is released, these are the last days to get Christmas orders in. Um, We don't own the Postal Service, so we can't guarantee that they'll get to you, but we will for sure do our best, get them out quick, and hopefully they make it to you. Quick note that you might be interested in, we got so many requests to release our Sharpen Your Sword zine as a standalone item that we went ahead and did that. Um, They are $5. All profits are donated to various 501c3s around the climbing industry that are helping out climbing communities. Um, So get in on that. It's got art from Nick Stiegel, and words from myself, Nate, Devin Dabney, Will Anglin, Lore Saberin, Brianna Blanchard, Ravioli Biceps, Marina Inouye, and Carrie Scott. All around the Sharpen Your Sword theme. All I did was give everyone the prompt, Sharpen Your Sword. That's it. They came in with their own pieces based on that idea. So check that out so that we can donate more money. To climbing communities. As always, there's a link right there in your show notes and your pocket supercomputers. One more quick note before we get into this. Breaking Beta, the Science of Climbing podcast is out into the world. Episode one dropped last week. Episode two is coming this week. The first season is 10 episodes long. And honestly, I think that Paul and I got better throughout the season. It got really fun by the end of it. This first season is focused on the research that can be applied to climbing that we most often hear cited by climbers and, of course, often misinterpreted. So Paul and I are diving into that research. We've got some great ideas for season two. We'd love to hear yours as well. So go listen to that link right there in your show notes and let us know what you think. Also, before we get started, I want to say a big thanks to Mark Calhoun from Red Butte Yeti Ranch here in Lander, Wyoming, for letting me use his spot to record this episode. I did not have my usual gear, and Mark came to the rescue, as he often does for this community. So, thanks, Mark. And if you're one of those folks who is listening to this on some hi-fi stereo system and you pay close attention to the sound, that's why this one sounds a little bit different. All right. Today's guest is a dynamic woman from Boulder, Colorado, by the name of Veronica Baker. She's the executive director of the Climbing Initiative, a relatively new organization that, honestly, going into this interview, I didn't know a whole lot about. I knew from talking to some friends that they had a mission they were very dedicated to and passionate about, and I wanted to understand what that was. So that's what most of this conversation is me digging in and trying to understand what it is exactly that they're doing. We talk a bit in here about their best practices, and these are essentially 
documents from over 100 contributors uh, from 19 different countries on how to build a sustainable climbing community, all of the different components that go into that. They have just recently started rolling those out. The full release will be summer 2022. And to be perfectly honest, getting to read some of these chapters has helped me understand their mission even better. I wasn't thinking on a large enough scale. Imagining and compiling these best practices is a massive undertaking. And I think it takes someone just like Veronica to spearhead that. So before I say too much, she's going to explain it far better than I can. Let's get into it. You're handing the pen to people from Kenya, Peru, Mexico, and they're writing them themselves. It'll be a living document. We're working, I guess, not with a pen, but with a pencil there. here was a big adjustment but i could always just go okay the finish line isn't far away it's yeah. not like i have 90 more <laughs> feet to go it's true so i'm just gonna commit and try it yeah yeah this is a good place for that for sure tell me a little bit about how the climbing initiative kind of how the idea began and how it started because i feel like climbing is this still fairly young sport lifestyle thing that people are engaging with. And it feels a little to me like what we were just talking about, like this, you know, launching off into this unknown thing. Um, there, there wasn't really a model for you when the climbing initiative was beginning, right? That's true. Yeah. We've, We've looked at other sports and the way that they've developed and um, there isn't, there are some sports that have definitely nonprofits dedicated, of course, to the environmental impact, um, sometimes to the the community engagement side of things, but kind of, and, and then economic development with tourism, but bringing it all together in one package, I think has been sort of uncharted territory for us in some ways. Um, the idea for creating it really came from the joining of myself and my co-founders. It was the confluence of sort of four different ideas coming together. Um, mine. Was it like campfire talk? Was it? No, each of us independently had this thought hmm. before meeting each other. And it happened really organically and synergistically. We, for me, it was on a flight home from climbing in Cuba and experiencing how profound of an impact climbing tourism has in the town of Vinales. And I come from a policy international development background. And so seeing that happen um, in such an organic way without some sort of uh, like government policy or kind of structured plan for that economic development to happen, just mm. seeing it naturally evolve from climbers going there and how much the town embraces that and welcomes that and themes their restaurants around it and creates this whole uh, yeah. ecosystem around it. That fascinated me. And 
I immediately started Googling as soon as the plane landed and was looking for some sort of organization or research that was looking at that impact on a global scale and, and found that it didn't exist. And I was uh, five months out at that point from starting a graduate degree. And perfect timing. Yeah. I realized um, that if they were going to if that graduate program would let me, I wanted to dedicate my grad degree to studying the growth of climbing around the world. And luckily I was going somewhere that had an open mind enough to recognize that as real research. That's really cool. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it until just this moment, but I'm kind of learning to climb in the Red River Gorge where Miguel's is a fixture. Um, Miguel was not a climber. Uh, he just was catering to the climbers and he's become this icon of the climbing community um, just in a synergistic way with the climbers who were there. Um, and we see that happen a lot in, you know, little small scales, little bits. You know, there are businesses here in town and Lander that cater to climbers. And then there are other businesses who haven't realized that yet um so having somebody having a group who is interested in helping the local economy figure out how to work better with climbers is kind of huge precisely because i think we're a pretty intimidating group <laughs> we have such an like a an in culture we we have all these traditions and yeah we're kind of weirdos and so for those on the outside of it uh, who may live in a climbing area and be excited about this tourism starting to happen, I imagine it could be a little bit tricky to figure out exactly what climbers want uh, unless we all get together and communicate a little bit better. Um, that's one of my big goals is helping non-climbers um, benefit from the growth of this sport. Had the other founders that you were talking to who all had kind of the same ideas, were they coming at it from the same direction or did they get their idea from a, you know, a different area of impact in some way? Yeah, it's fascinating. They all had their own unique flavor that we then mixed together in this cool recipe for what the climbing initiative became. So the first to join on uh, was became our director of research, Ludivine. She was a undergraduate at Yale while I was doing this research. And she comes from a, a neuroscience and child psychology background. And so for her, her initial drive and interest in this was uh, a lot of the mental health and physical health benefits of climbing mm. and, and was fascinated mm. by that. So when she heard from a friend that I was doing this research, she asked to uh, become my research assistant on all the case studies I was doing um, that summer. And then simultaneously, Danny, uh, who's now our associate director, she was doing a graduate program of her own in Washington. And she was studying the community development aspect of this and uh, how climbing can be a tool for all these greater impacts within the community. So she wrote a paper that's so similar to a paper I wrote. We put them together and it was this moment of, oh my God, I can't believe on completely different coasts, we were thinking exactly the same way of how we need uh, an organization to 
bring everyone together because the growth of climbing is just happening in all these little pockets and people aren't really talking to each other or um, connecting about the best practices and and the ways that we can do all this together. And then finally, Scott, our our fourth co-founder, he had just traveled to Malawi and was visiting his friend Tyler who had founded Climb Malawi and came back to the U.S. wanting to figure out a way to better funnel resources from the U.S. like gear and funds um, to a Malawian nonprofit. So it kind of is the confluence of all of those, the research, the community engagement, the like tangible impact of real resource support, all of those came together to create this organization together. That's what I fucking love about <laughs> this community actually is that when you want to get something done, there's almost always a group of people nearby who have the requisite skills, passion, drive to get the thing done and get it going. Um, where I think it often falters, strangely enough, is maybe coincidentally enough, is that those people aren't communicating what they want. Um, I just heard, I was just told this story um, the, of this mythical meeting that happened um, overseas. I can't remember exactly where. One of the first big sport climbing competitions um, in the 80s. And the top climbers from everywhere came together in this competition. And it wasn't until that moment that they all got to be in the same place talking. You know, we take that for granted now on the internet, but they supposedly spent time in a tent, um, all just talking about the way they do things, how they bolt roots, how they clean anchors, how they, you know, practice things on repel or don't, or, you know, all just all of these ideas. And it just, it, it was this first time that climbers were communicating and I haven't been able to, to say for sure whether or not this is more than a myth, but I love the idea of it. And, and that's what you all are doing with, the development of communities, not just with the, how are we engaging with the roots that we climb, but the, the greater community, which ultimately is the, the bigger deal. Yeah, absolutely. As we did all this research, we obviously connected with communities around the world. And then a year into our founding or less than COVID hit. Mm. And that forced us into this phase of just a real listening phase. Uh, where we couldn't be engaging, going directly to the communities. We couldn't be, you know, everything kind of shut down. It was really hard for us to get gear to these communities to do any of that real sure. on the ground work. And so we look back on that as an organization uh, with a lot of gratitude that we were forced to slow down for a year and really get to know these communities, bond with them, uh, get to know the climbing community leaders. Because all around the world in places like Malawi, Lebanon, Ecuador, all over, there are these rising leaders who speak this language of positive impact and who see the economic, social, environmental kind of trifecta of impact that we're talking about here and see how this vehicle, how this sport is a vehicle for all of those things um, moving forward. So to connect with all of them, spend that time. I mean, we're so lucky to be doing this in this moment in history when the world is more interconnected than ever and where you can yeah. 
build a friendship with someone continents away. Um, and, and in that, in this phase now, I think the climbing community needs to open their eyes a little bit and do that outreach, like follow more climbers from other countries, that sort of thing, because there's no excuse not to anymore. We're all, we're all here. We're all on the internet. We can all talk to each other. Yeah, totally. So exciting. Before we go too far, because I'm just, I, I want to hear all the stories about how it began and where it's going and, you know, how it's being modeled. Um, but tell me and tell the listeners what the climbing initiative is exactly. If, if I'm asked about it, it's a hard thing for me to explain. And my, my go-to has been, they're kind of the go between creating communication between all the other climbing groups. That's very accurate. Yes. Thank you for okay. that, Chris. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Yeah. What we say is we are a nonprofit dedicated to the sustainable and equitable growth of climbing worldwide. Um, it's not just about the growth of climbing areas, but climbing communities. And through that interconnectedness, through creating a web of climbing organizations and supporting all those climbing organizations, we together can be better and have better impact than they than we all would separately. And you're working with big organizations as well as kind of local grassroots organizations or what does that look like? Absolutely. Our, the people we work with most, I'd say, on a daily basis are these local climbing organizations uh, in emerging climbing contexts where they, in a lot of these areas – Perhaps some adventurous tourists have come before and bolted some routes, mm -hmm. but the locals, you and I understand how infectious and exciting this sport is. Yeah. Um, you, certain people within the community kind of feel that spark and feel that desire to um, make climbing their own. And so we see these climbing leaders emerging and creating their own climbing organizations. And then in addition to that, we do work with uh, larger national and global level organizations that are already doing a lot of amazing work in the climbing world, but maybe doing so at a very high level, um, kind of a policy level. And we tend to be that bridge kind of to, to the on the ground communities themselves. Cool. When, when did it start? Like when was the official start of the climbing initiative? May, 2019. Okay. So you're still fairly young can you to this point pinpoint any kind of um, hurdles that you're seeing, especially in these, you know, grassroots organizations, any kind of normal hurdles that s happen with most of them? Definitely. I think what we hear most overall is that these climbing communities say, you know, I'm like busting my ass here. I am doing all of this. The local community doesn't understand it, mm. which either makes them just on one level feel kind of ostracized or unsupported sure. at the greatest level, you know, running into access issues or um, direct confrontation with the local community. Um, not always. It's not always bad like that, but often certainly can be issues. Yeah. yeah. And just they express uh, a lot of these local leaders express that they just wish that they 
had people to talk to who've been there before mm. and who maybe <clears throat> have developed both areas and communities in um, climbing areas that are just a little bit further ahead and have already gone through the issues. So that's number one is they want this knowledge sharing and, and greater connectivity. Someone who will pick up the phone and say, oh, I've been there. Don't worry about it. Here's kind of a way you can navigate this a little bit better. Uh, second that comes to mind among all these communities is gear and resources. Um, in a country like Malawi, a local will never be able to afford a harness at market price right. um, or, or many other types of gear. And so figuring out um, a pipeline uh, either from brands in the U.S. and Europe or how to manufacture gear less expensively, but still in a way that passes all the safety certifications, mm -hmm. um, that's kind of a, a second issue that comes to mind. And um, finally just the desire to run organizations more efficiently. Like people in lots of other countries have founded nonprofits dedicated to their local climbing community and protecting the environment, all the things that local climbing organizations everywhere do. Um, but they're a little bit held together by a shoestring. They're not feeling that level of support that they need to run as, as a very efficient organization. So we're helping with that. I'm sure. I hadn't even thought about that as an issue, but speaking absolutely from experience climbers are so hungry for more all the time and you know when i started this thing i thought this is going to be a little baby thing that's going to take me 15 hours a week tops and now i could i could work 24 hours a day and never be caught up you know so i feel you <laughs> yeah i bet and it's a really interesting thing, especially when it's starting in a place that has no climbing culture, no climbing community, and they're simultaneously figuring out the culture, how to build the community, how to interact with the local you know, economy and community. And then there are also new climbers coming in, like they're getting other climbers excited. And then those climbers want more and want more and want more. And it's a tough thing to keep up with. So I hadn't even thought about that importance of what you guys are doing. Thank you. Yeah. At the end of the day, we are capacity builders. We are there to help the people that are doing amazing work on the ground and to link them together, support them. What makes me really happy and excited, kind of what gets me out of bed in the morning is talking to people about the thing that they are so passionate about but never get thanked for. Mm. I come, my previous career, uh, long story, but I had this other career in Middle East policy and I was doing research in places like Tunisia and Egypt and Jordan. And my job was to, for a good chunk of it, I was interviewing civil society activists post-Arab Spring, um, people who had overthrown their government and were building a new society. And so in that time, what was most profound to me was at the end of those interviews, those research interviews, a lot of the feedback I would get was people kind of with tears in their eyes saying, thank you. No one's ever asked me about this. I dedicate my all my waking hours toward this, toward building my new society. And I've never had someone especially someone from outside of the country, sit down with me 
and ask me about the details of it and what's been hard and what I've succeeded in and um, just feel recognized for that kind of behind the scenes work. And so even though now my career is in the world of climbing, it feels like very much the same thing. We're just building a climbing society. And there are so many people behind the scenes doing really, really hard work, giving their own time and resources, money uh, to this thing that we all love. And uh, I want to be able to give them a platform to be recognized and to just be able to do it uh, the way that they want to be able to do it. Yeah. And it, it occurs to me that they're not they're not only doing work in a lot of these places behind the scenes, they're building the scene to begin with. You know, it doesn't even exist until they're there to build it brick by brick. Yeah. What's most exciting to me about that is that we have the opportunity to help them get off on the right foot and start great from square one. Because as we know in the U S or Europe or a lot of these other areas, we have access issues. We have lots of environmental degradation Mm -hmm. and those things can be, it didn't have to be that way. It makes sense why it was that way because the sport grew so (laughs) on its own, like without someone looking over it saying, this is how it should be done because no one had the experience. We, we, everyone was um, figuring it out as they went, but we don't have that excuse anymore. We've seen, thousands of climbing areas grow and we know what works really well and what doesn't. And, um, everything's contextual. Every climbing area is different. Every climbing community is different, but there's enough similar that it excites me so much to work with local leaders, uh, and, and get them off on a good, a good foot. Yeah. I, I like that. You just said that all the communities are different and the areas are different. Um, I was talking with Scott and Tyler this morning and, I, by nature, am a skeptic and a button pusher and, you know, I'd like to get people riled up, um, to see the reactions and to understand what's going on deeper than just these like surface level monologues they've prepared, you know, and, and the, I think the idea of any sort of overseer is the wrong word, but any sort of group that's, you know, overseeing how things go, we start to get the idea of rules in our head. And a lot of climbers just don't like rules, you know? Um, so when I was talking to Tyler and Scott today, I'm like, well, I think there's going to be some roadblocks here. I think you're going to have trouble with this. And Tyler's just like, look, all we want to do is empower these individual communities to figure it out for themselves. And I think that's brilliant. It's, it's not saying here's how you have to do it because it was done this way over here in this other country. And we know best. Yeah, totally. There are multiple members of our team have experience developing climbing areas or working in climbing gyms or working with local climbing organizations, working in local communities, uh, even backgrounds in international development or global health outside of climbing. So we're all coming in with these different skill sets and backgrounds and maybe lenses through which we can look at all of these things. But we are by no means the experts or, or uh, able to be prescriptive about any of this. We are just providing platform for people in local communities to share their voice about what they see going on. Uh, That's why for our best practices project, where we are creating this resource of chapters that people are writing of 
how they've done different aspects of climbing area and community development. We are not writing it ourselves. We are handing the pen to people from Kenya, from Peru, from Mexico, and they're writing them themselves. And it'll be a living document so that as we learn as a community, as climbing itself changes, we can change that. We're working, I guess, not with a pen, but with a pencil there. I love that. Um, though I do prefer doing crosswords and pen, just for the record. <laughs> um, tell me about this document, these best policies that you're working up. And A, when can we expect to see the first iteration of it? And B, what can we expect to see and learn from it? This is something that we knew we wanted to create from a pretty early stage in the organization because to us, best practices are just putting on paper the ideas and recommendations shared between communities, which is one of those needs that I articulated um, that have been shared by global climbing leaders is not having, not requiring people to reinvent the wheel as they're building crags or climbing communities. So these are, I think at this point we have 54 different chapters written by people all over the world and they are just, they're about five pages each, not too long, but really just a philosophy of how you approach different things like trail stewardship or measuring economic impact or fundraising for a climbing organization. Those are all really intimidating things to do, whether you're in a brand new area or whether you're just trying to get your local community that's already very well developed, uh, been around for a while whether you're just trying to improve certain things about it. Um, so that document, we are aiming to have version 1.0 out later this year, like late fall. Uh, but it, it'll, like I said, it's a living document. It will never be finished because climbing right. will never be finished and climbing will always change. So uh, it'll be available for the whole global community. And we're really excited to see the conversations that that starts Um it also includes experience boxes kind of on the side of the page where we take this philosophy of how you approach the key lessons of any given topic and bring it out to an experience of this is what happened when this was implemented in the Red River Gorge or this is what we learned from the experience in Australia. And mm. that kind of stuff. Very cool. I, I love that different communities will be able to a learn from the mistakes of other communities um, because none of us get it all right. You know, we, we may get one small thing right um, and do it really well. But then as soon as it comes time to do this other thing, we're totally lost and have to start from scratch. And it's so much easier to reference what other communities in a similar situation at a similar level have done and made work and seen work. Yeah. So. And there are so many innovative ideas out there, whether it's yeah. a new way to build a trail yeah. or a creative kind of funky approach to fundraising for your local climbing organization or uh, any of any of these aspects of it. Those really innovative ideas, you know, a, a new bolt extraction uh, piece of hardware, anything like that that kind of make you scratch your head and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't think of that. But that makes total sense. And those ideas in this current phase of climbing where we are right now are just going to kind of rest with the person that had that idea and they're 
kind of concentric circle of the people around them. But we want to bring that out a little bit bigger because climbers are inherently problem solvers. We're all problem solving. That's the entire idea with this sport, no matter what kind of climbing you do. And so I think it's really fun to get us all together and problem solve the sport itself, which is a little meta. One of the things that I think is really fascinating about climbers actually is that while we are problem solvers, I agree with that 100%. We also, a lot of the group is rooted in this tradition that's unwilling to change. And I love that in all of your examples, you said a new way to do this, a new way to do this, this new thing that we never thought about. Because while I'm a button pusher and a skeptic, I'm also constantly looking for a new and better way. And and I go to battle with a lot of people over that. Well, we've always done it this way. Why should we change? And I think that's missing the entire spirit of this sport and lifestyle, which like you said, is problem solving. Have you, have you had any? And since I suspect you will, how do you plan on dealing with the pushback from the traditional camp? And I don't mean that in terms of traditional climbing, just in this, the way we do it, why should we change? Well, just because we change and learn and grow doesn't mean that we forget the history of this sport. I think that's something that people conflate sometimes. Um, No matter how we evolve, how we grow, how we change, the history of this sport is always going to be there. And it is remarkable to me that in other countries, continents away, people still know who the forefathers and foremothers of this sport, as we know it today, are um, and and who they were. But we're just adding to that history. We're adding additional stories. I Mm. loved what you and Cody talked about in the previous podcast, which everyone should listen to, uh, about indigenous communities having connection to this rock. I mean, the history itself that we think of as the tradition of climbing isn't the only story here. So I think it's necessary for us to kind of take a step back and realize that as well. But regardless, that's the nature of the world. That's the nature of history itself. I mean, when climbing started to be created, um, people were changing things then and breaking boundaries then. So why would we slow it down now and choose a moment to become static about it? I think it's much more exciting to welcome change with open arms. Yeah, I, I agree completely. If, if we had always said, we're never going to change, this is just the best way to do it, we never would have climbed anything to begin with. You know, we'd have stayed walking around on the ground. We may have never made it to walking. You know, we didn't start there. So... I agree completely. And I'm, I'm glad you said we're not trying to erase the history. We're just moving forward like history does, you know, that's how it works. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that. If I were in your seat, I would have just been like, fuck all the haters because that's where I generally go immediately. And that's why people like you are in the position you're in and not me. So I'm glad you're there doing it. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I think we just have a lot more to learn from each other because it's also not like these 
areas that I'm referring to as new and emerging, it's not like climbing's brand new there. People, right. even before the advent of sport climbing or, or kind of the normal way that we do the sport now, people were tying vines together, yeah. climbing the olive trees up the cliff. You know, this is to say that there's this tradition or history of climbing in the U.S. or Europe fails to acknowledge the fact that humans have always tried to get up on stuff and look out from the top of it. Yeah. So climbing has been happening for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Now I've done this a few times on the podcast where I'm, I mostly do this thing entirely from the perspective as just a curious listener myself. You know, I want to know all of the things that are going on all the time because I just love it all so much. I want to know what you're excited to talk about because it's a young company. You just have come off the gear show and OR and uh, the climbers festival here. And I know your whole team was just together and you all got to sit around and or run around uh, OR as the case may be, but talk a lot about the direction that you were going. And I know that Tyler and Scott both came away really excited about the direction um, that you're taking. So I'm mostly curious to know what you're excited to talk about. I think I'm most curious to pick your brain about where climbing is at now. I mean, we just saw climbing enter the Olympics. We're in a new era here. Um, the climbing initiative fits into that for sure. And I'd love to talk about it. But given that you've been in this community a bit longer than I have. I'm Approximately a hundred years. <laughs> I've heard. Um, I'm curious to hear your perspectives on what you think this moment in climbing is, or maybe it's nothing. Maybe this is just a blip and we're just going to continue on as we have been. I'm curious what your, what your thoughts are there. Yeah, I, I'm unsure. Um, Nate and I had a lot of conversations about this uh, over the last few weeks and we did some research into how previous Olympics have changed other sports. And I think the example we all go back to so often, the example I've seen used is snowboarding. Yeah. You know, look at what happened to snowboarding. But there are two things there. Number one, snowboarding had Sean White. Mm -hmm. You know, they had a very recognizable superstar. Um, and two, I read several studies that said snowboarding sales actually dropped off after the Olympics, um, that they had peaked prior to the Olympics, um, which I think is really interesting, um, that just because it's in our faces more doesn't necessarily mean it's going to have this huge boom, um, so I do think it will grow. It has been growing. I think that trajectory continues. I'm actually really excited that there's more emphasis happening in the comp world, that these gym communities are becoming their own communities, completely separate from the outdoors. And there are people whose entire performance and entire climbing life is in the gym. Um, I, I personally love that. Um, 
I'm not sure that there will be this giant boom that a lot of people talk about and it's going to get extra scary and all the crags are going to get ruined. And I don't think that's going to happen. And, but I do think that the growth that's been happening has been, while not necessarily exponential, it has accelerated a lot over the last decade. And, and that makes me happy that there are groups like you, groups like the Access Fund, and all of these local grassroots organizations have popped up in the last 20 years. It's been really amazing to watch. So I personally feel like it's in good hands and is going a, a good direction. And there are more people speaking up on their own worth and their own value. And I, I'm just sitting here loving taking it all in. So that's wonderful. I'm glad to hear. I agree with you. I think for me, it's not just a question of if it's going to grow and how fast, but kind of the quality of how it Mm. grows and the quality of the connections. Because what I do see still is this sort of myopic view of what stories should be told in the climbing world and who should be highlighted, kind of who gets platform, who gets the benefits of, um, huge attention in this climbing community. And I think the more that people realize that there are really cool climbers in other countries and that their stories should not just be told as kind of a one-off, but that they are just as valuable and powerful members of these, of this community as the people whose names we're used to hearing. I think that's the shift that I am hoping for and excited for. Mm, I love that. It, Actually, while you were saying it, it made me regret a little my my uh, sticking to my guns of only doing these interviews in person. Um, because one of my favorite things about this podcast was all of the interviews I got to do when I was in Australia. Um, just with people I never would have connected with otherwise, or, or at least had the the opportunity to sit down with them for an hour and a half and talk, you know, face to face. Um, I love being able to do that and you should start a podcast talking with all of these people in all these other countries um, amongst all the other things you're doing. (laughs) Thank you. We've definitely thought about it. We come away from our advising meetings with a lot of these climbing communities they're just a, a handful of communities that we meet with monthly to help develop a roadmap to their success, what they want to do. Um, and we help in the way that we can help, help them get there. We walk away from those saying, man, we should have recorded. <laughs> like yeah, there's so many cool quotes that come out of that and <clears throat> just such cool perspectives, things that we don't hear in the rest of the climbing world that I think everyone should be hearing. So yeah, there are absolutely fantastic leaders out there that need to be highlighted more. So yeah, either you need to start traveling more, doing a lot of interviews on some other continents Uh or start breaking your rules or we need a a global climbing podcast. Yeah. I think, I think all the people listening right now are hearing the beginning of what's going to be me hounding you to record this stuff. And I would absolutely help put it out there. Thank Um, you. I think it's, it's really valuable to hear those other perspectives and, you know, to hear that this isn't just the U S and Europe, you know, it's, it's that these aren't the only places climbing is happening. And, um, 
hearing the way that other people are engaging with it and learning from it and building it in their own way is is so valuable. Yeah, whether it's hearing a Kenyan athlete talk about what it means to him to pioneer climbing in his own country, a country where climbing and mountaineering have been completely tied to white colonialism. Yeah. Or women in India talking about how they have dealt with sexual harassment and a lack of equity in their society for their entire lives and climbing, going climbing and these groups of women going bouldering is like their one escape in the place that they've built an incredible community. Those are very, very cool stories and, and um, deserve to be told. A really cool place to start is the climbing advocacy conference that was hosted last November. So November, 2020 access fund came to us at the climbing initiative and asked us to help them make it global because they Mm. host their annual event every year, but it's usually in person. And we agreed instantly that making it virtual due to COVID opened up an opportunity to make it an international conference. So those recordings are available on access funds, Vimeo, I believe um, where anyone can watch them. And that a lot of those ideas that I'm talking about are shared there, a good place for listeners to start. And in that conference, is it, you know, are, are the discussions similar to what we've been talking about? Are they more access fund, um, discussions? No, access fund had a really open mind about what that could be. Um, recognizing that access isn't just, can you get through the gate to the cliff, but rather how do you even get to climbing in the first place? How do you preserve it for future generations? All of those things. So there were really cool panels on everything from um, increasing, increasing inclusivity in climbing communities to um, rebolting to um, fundraising to kind of all these best practices, um, things that we've been talking about. There's all kinds of topics in there. That's fantastic. I had, no idea. And, you know, it's interesting whenever we in the U S in particular hear about, um, the climbing initiative or any other climbing organization, I think the first comparison that happens is the access fund. And it's so easy to go into this mental place where, Oh, well, the only reason we need an organization is to open up more climbing to us, you know? Um, because we don't have to go much deeper underneath the surface. Um, a lot of this has been set up for us. So we don't have to consider those things a lot of the time. Yeah. It makes sense why climbing organizations tend to focus a lot on access and environmental conservation. Cause those are very front of mind and very important. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's what enables us to do our sport. Um, so it makes sense that those are, frontline needs. But going beyond that, I think a lot of climbing organizations, local climbing organizations that may have focused a lot on the environment and access previously are stepping up to talk about the social and economic aspects of this because it's all intertwined. When we were in the early days of the climbing initiative, I was talking to my dad about it and he was comparing it to skiing and saying how amazing what it would have been decades ago if we had an organization dedicated to thinking about how ski resorts were being built and what kind of impact they were having. 
Yeah. Environmentally for sure, but also the impact on the local community and making sure that people with disabilities, people lacking different aspects of privilege um, were able to enjoy this sport. And that to me really spoke to what we're doing here is this sport is not yet entrenched. This sport is very dynamic, changing every day. And we have the opportunity to make it into whatever we want it to be. Yeah. I was thinking the same about skate skateboarding, actually. Um, I just watched a great documentary called monochrome, I believe is the name of it, uh, about black skateboarders and how when skateboarding was based in skate parks and at ramps, there was always a gatekeeper of some sort. It was either next to a suburb where black people didn't feel safe or it was, you know, in the woods uh, behind a suburb where they didn't feel safe or it was in someone's yard where they didn't feel comfortable going when no one was home. And, and it wasn't until the advent of street skating and that started becoming more popular that black skaters were able to really engage with the sport. And, and it occurred to me while we were talking earlier, how great it would have been had there been someone saying, oh, maybe we don't build this skate park right next to the suburb. Maybe we put it over here where it's a more neutral location. And, you know, maybe instead of just hiring a random construction company to build this skate park that ends up not very useful for skaters, there's an organization that people can talk to. And, you know, we've seen skiing, we've seen skateboarding grow and explode into these big influential things. Um, So it's not that they can't become this force for positive change, Um, but why not direct it in the right direction from the beginning instead of having hundreds of skate parks that no one skates at because they're not very useful. Absolutely. What came to mind for me as you were talking there was the work of one of our partner organizations, the Andean Access Fund in Ecuador, because they are going into rural areas of Ecuador and partnering with indigenous communities to develop climbing areas. And um, it was when you were speaking about, you know, who you hire as the construction crew, because what the Andean Access Fund is doing is um, hiring locals as porters to bring the gear to the mm. wall, to help cut the trails, to cook food for after the developers are done for the day, all of that kind of stuff and, and hiring them at above market rate um, for, for what they normally earn there. And it's those kinds of direct actions that mean that we're going beyond just talk in the climbing community yeah. of how we can be more inclusive or um, be more supportive of local communities. And it's, it's like, no, that actually changes lives. Um, when you're talking about people making sense a day, um, that makes an enormous impact. Yeah. And I think when you, when you say inclusive, a lot of people jump straight to race or gender because those are the, you know, current, very important conversations that are happening. But in that situation, you're also, including the entire community in this this sport that other people are engaging in. So even if these 
porters or these cooks or you know, the trail builders aren't going climbing, there's still this sense of pride in this thing that the whole community has created instead of, oh, these people just came in and are doing this thing in our on our land that we don't really know what's going on, so we don't trust it. Absolutely. And a lot of them do end up becoming climbers. That ends yeah. up being their entry into it because they feel they have kind of a way to step into the community. It's really beautiful and fun. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm sure you've seen the, the Joe's Valley real rock piece. And I think that's a really great example of how that can go in these rural communities uh, in the U S in particular, where, you know, the, the little store that doesn't really know what it should carry for climbers and, they have to be able to communicate with the community who the rest of the town feels like are outsiders coming in, you know, and as soon as those communication lines are opened, it becomes a much better thing. And the community embraces the community that came in, you know, it, it's, it's really a beautiful thing when we allow it to be and communication seems to be the, the wall that a lot of people hit. Absolutely. One really beautiful example of that was in Cerro Castillo, um, a region in Chile and Patagonia. The community came together. Uh, it was organized by uh, Knowles and Excesso Pan Am and a number of brands brought together the community for a uh, ecotourism seminar, I think they called it, two years ago where they brought everyone to the table, including the landowners who have cliffs or trails in their backyard, mm. including all the local businesses, including um, people from the local universities and the local government, and I believe national government, all came together for a few days to truly sit down at tables and pull out the neon sticky notes and start working together, um, identifying what challenges they were all facing together. and what they saw as the path forward to success and, and what they want their climbing area to look like, especially as they welcome tourists in. And we thought that was a really profound model and we would love to see that happen in more climbing areas because people talking informally about the climbing world that they want to create is great. But I think at the end of the day, this sport is so big and the impact on the community is so big that formalizing it a little bit. I know as climbers, we don't like formalizing things very much, <laughs> but if you provide the framework for people to actually sit down and talk about these things and develop a plan together um, and the local people doing it themselves and, and articulating exactly what they want, I think that is a necessary or at least a way to find the best path forward here. Yeah, and just understanding it understanding all the sides of the conversation is such an important part of this that for some reason we tend to skip over a lot, at least here in the communities I've been involved in. Um, there's a lot of, uh, and, and I'm a person who doesn't trust anyone initially. Like everyone starts at zero and they have to earn points. Um, and, and I see a lot of suspicion from 
the local communities who aren't climbers on what the climbers are actually doing. And, and I see a lot of suspicion from local climbers when climbers from other areas are coming in and there's this, just this strange tension that happens there when people aren't communicating. And as soon as you put them in the same room and hear all the sides of it, all of a sudden everyone realizes that all that tension was pointless. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The intention within the climbing community is very good, but if we're not sitting down, talking to one another, meeting each other, doing all of that work, then yeah, you're right. The, the suspicion, um, can definitely arise because we're talking about a sport with major safety implications, mm-hmm. like literally life and death. And I think that adds something really cool and interesting to this sport, but also rises the stakes a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't want climbing to ever lose its kind of renegade nature. Sure. But I think it's possible to build systems around it that support it without doing that. I mean, we've, we've already been doing that. When, you, when you're a climber long enough, if you're really paying attention to what's around you, you realize that bolts cost money, that maintaining trails cost money and takes a lot of work from people, all those kinds of things. And so one thing I'm very passionate about is believing that climbers need to become members of their local climbing organizations. I think we think that the sport is a little more free than it actually is in terms mm-hmm. of the cost of it. Um, so when I think formalization, I think that's a first step is people getting involved either through volunteering or paying for membership or vol- uh, donating money, any of that kind of stuff to their local organization mm. and, and then extrapolating that globally, especially if you're traveling globally um, to support the climbing areas that you're connecting with on a global scale. You're so much better at being democratic than I am. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I'm I'm glad you're in that role. Um, I was talking to Tyler this morning and he said something I thought was really fascinating and, and I think should be a requirement for any organization really is that, you know, he said, I'm this more, you know, he, he thinks in kind of bigger, um, ethereal pictures and, you know, he, he's this bigger dreamer and, (laughs) and then that filters down to you and you're the boots on the ground, turning wrenches, making things work kind of a person. And, and I think that's necessary. Is that something you looked for in the organization at all? Or did it just happen that way? It just happened. And I'm so grateful for it. And I'm, I'm very impressed that from outside of the organization that you've been able to put your finger on that, because that is a really profound aspect of how our team of directors work together is we have the contingent who are enormous dreamers. Think about all the philosophical questions behind this. Think about, you know, is it good for climbing to grow? Do we even want it to grow? Yeah. Um, do we, <clears throat> are we focused on the sport itself or as an organization, are we just really passionate about the economic, social, and environmental impacts that it can have? And climbing is just the vehicle for that. Um, all of those really esoteric questions. And Tyler is one of the members of the team that is very focused on those. 
And you're right. I mean, just last week, uh, we were having a conversation like that and I sort of shut down and just said, I don't know, just give me stuff to do. Just give me option A or option B <laughs> and one's going to be better than the other and we'll go with it. And I think both, uh, in, in a leadership team, the balance of those two things are essential because if you have too much or exclusively one perspective or the other, you're not going to get anywhere. Where does this thing go from here? Are you, are you looking for organizations to, you know, to reach out to you? Are you reaching out to organizations? Are there specific needs that the climbing initiative has that you're struggling to meet that maybe someone listening can help with? I'll paint the picture of what I see, what I imagine of the climbing world in this phase without something like the climbing initiative existing and then mm. what it is or what we hope, what our vision is for the future of it. So I think that without us, climbing will continue to grow. It mm -hmm. will have great impacts. Uh, people all over the world will continue to find it and it'll expand in that way. But I think that without an organization like the Climate Initiative, the stories that are told will continue to focus more on some groups than the others. Mm. Um, communities will be held back in the resources that they're able to get. I mean, this is all conjecture. I'm sure people will step up and solve a lot of problems, but this is kind of where I'm coming from here. Um, there could be access issues. There could be um, a lot of great growth and energy and enthusiasm for growing this sport in certain areas, but inevitably some will collapse. Most nonprofits um, have a lot of trouble sustaining. Yeah. Especially if you're operating in a place like Monterey, Mexico with very little resources. Sure. Um, and so my goal and my vision and that of my team is that on the opposite end of the spectrum, if we not only exist, but if we are able to thrive as an organization, that we will be this organization that can hold the hand of many organizations around the world that kind of knows what's going on everywhere, who is putting out fires where, who's doing amazing on the ground work that deserves greater support in the community. Um, we can act as this hub of information and, and knowledge sharing uh, so that we are at the cutting edge of innovative approaches to building the climbing world that they that we want to build. Um, with us thriving and in existence, one of our big goals is to formalize all of this advising that we have been doing with these local organizations and instead turn it into sort of a accelerator where we select climbing organizations that um, we can help formalize into really, really effective sort of like startup incubators that, mm. that they have out there in the world. Because we think climbing organizations deserve just that same level of attention and, and resource giving um, where we can bring in experts that know even more than we do about how to fundraise, how to um, think about all the legal dimensions of running a climbing organization, how to um, run events or build community, make sure that you're 
reaching all the people that you want to in the community, all those kinds of things. Um, so that's one long-term vision is the creation of this kind of accelerator and lots of toolkits, things that people can have access to if they say want to start a climbing festival and don't really know where to start, um, to have a toolkit that gives you the step-by-step -step of here's what you need to do and here's what you might not even think about, but that if you do it, you're going to be creating something that's a lot more successful and does it um, in a way that helps everyone and, and maximizes the positive impact. Those are some of the things rattling around in my brain. Um, so the Rattling around? <laughs> yes, constantly. <laughs> um, so the, the actual ways that that can be supported and helped mm. are, I think, first and foremost through existing climbing organizations, brands, foundations, philanthropists um, who want to partner with us and really make those things come alive and dream with us because we don't know everything. Um, certainly we've just listened to a lot of climbing community leaders telling us what they need, but we love sitting down with people across the table um, who have had success or um, run successful organizations who want to make their reach global and dream up what those kind of programs and projects can be. Um, but then beyond that, just everyday climbers too, who say, you know, I want to see that sort of climbing world. Um, we would love to have their support as well by following us, by uh, increasing our reach, resharing our content, donating, any of those kinds of things are um, kind of the nuts and bolts of how our reach and uh, abilities in as an organization can expand. First off, I, I love when a thing pops up that I didn't know was as necessary as it is. Um, because as much as I like to question my assumptions and find new ways, there will always be holes in what I'm even imagining. Um, like I think any of us, and this is something I never even occurred to me was a necessary thing. But when you put it, um, as confidently as you just did, which is why rattling around <laughs> stuck out to me because this sounds like something you've thought a lot about. Um, and it sounds like it's got weight and it's, it's sitting there um, with some heft to it, as opposed to just rattling around. Um, when you put it that confidently, I, I can't imagine it not existing now. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you. And thanks for taking the time to sit down with me. I, I know that when we're on climbing trips, it's like, I don't, I don't really want to not climb the rest of the day. So, so I appreciate you doing it. And for me, there's a, there's the person who may climb hard um, may have a, a platform where they reach a lot of people. Um, but if they're not willing to go above and beyond their own selfish pursuit of climbing, that doesn't mean a lot to me. Um, 
And then there are the people who find a way to selfishly pursue it while also trying to help a lot of other people in the process. And that's where I think the real magic is um, when you don't lose sight of your own goals, but can help a lot of other people along the way. So, and I, that's, that's what I'm seeing here. So, so thanks. Yeah. Climbers are some of the most passionate people out there and we're so driven, you know, in this metaphorical way, like upward. And so I think, um, it's natural and I'm very excited by the openness of climbers to think about what could be, um, really special and i'm so excited to sit with sit back down with you five or ten years from now and talk yeah, about what the sport looks like because yeah i think it'll change in ways we can't even expect and talk about how our podcast is going i know it's so exciting <laughs> <laughs> veronica thank you so much for sitting down for taking the time out of a climbing trip to discuss all of this i'm already looking forward to that next one especially now that the best practices are starting to roll out i'm really interested in talking to you and maybe some people from your team and some of the contributors about those best practices uh, veronica and i sat down in the summer so as of today the first three chapters of the best practices are out into the world. Those are building an inclusive climbing community, climbers and bat conservation, and building a sustainable fixed hardware maintenance program. There are 30 plus chapters that will be releasing in summer of 2022. And those are based in six main sections. There's crag development and maintenance, environmental conservation, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, community engagement, economic impact, and climbing organizations. Um, you can go onto their website. You can find the outline of their best practices. You can read the first three. I'm looking forward to not only reading all of these best practices, but also seeing the response from the community, seeing how these things get molded and changed over time really, like I said, a monumental task, but a really important one that we're talking on a global scale about how to make more sustainable climbing communities that take a variety of perspectives when looking at the challenges that we're all facing. You can also go and look at the list of really impressive contributors from all over the world, 19 different countries. And while you're there, if you're interested in supporting in some way, by all means, reach out. You can do that at climbinginitiative.org support. There are also going to be lots of links, um, both to the Climbing Initiative and to some of the things that we discussed in this episode, like the Access Fund videos. Um, right there in the show notes in your pocket supercomputers. You now have a whole list of important things you could be doing, so get to it. You know where to find us, powercompanyclimbing.com. You can find us on the Instagrams, the Facebooks, Pinterest, YouTubes, all those places, at Power Company Climbing. But you will not find us on the Twitter, because we don't tweet, we scream like eagles. <laughs>